Great. Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is my friend, Gary Ginsburg. And for those of you in the media world, the business world, maybe the political world, you know Gary, but you know him as kind of a mover and shaker uh, on the business side of things. And today, instead, we're going to talk about Gary's new book called First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bradley. So so you, I remember when you told me you were doing this, we were having lunch. It was when Mike was running for president and we went through one of our sort of really bad debate prep sessions and you <laughs> and I sort of ducked out to grab lunch afterwards. And, and I have to say, I was surprised that you, not that you were writing a book, that you were writing this book because you, you're not like a historian. So what, no. what made you someone who's had this really successful and big career at big companies like News Corp and Time Warner, um, decide to write a, a delightful but still somewhat academic book. Well, first of all, I just loved writing this book. Um, I would, since I was a little kid, I've just been fascinated by the American presidency. And as I got involved in politics and in business and began observing leaders and the people they kept around them, I started to see this kind of curious phenomenon of the first friend and the influence that the closest friend of the leader had on them how they could speak to them in ways that nobody else could, you know, provide emotional support, give reassurance, comfort in a way their staff couldn't. I saw it, you know, my first presidential campaign was in 1984 with Gary Hart. I was a senior in college and he would parachute in for the most important events of the campaign. And he would speak to Hart in a way that nobody else did. He'd say, stop talking and acting like a politician, Gary, act like a human being. And Hart would, you know, just listen to him in a way that nobody else listened to him. And I then saw it in 1992 with the Bill Clinton campaign, which I worked on. You know, I don't think any president in history can say they were elected president because of their close friends. He can because they rescued him in New Hampshire when his campaign was on the ropes. And then I saw the influence that Vernon Jordan had. And I was fast. I worked with Vernon on the vice presidential search committee. And I was fascinated by the dynamic that he had with him, that he was actually the one equal around Clinton and could speak to him in a way that nobody else could, but also could provide him with respite and support and levity. So um, I, I, kinda, I guess I got the idea really after Clinton, but then it really crystallized for me about four years ago watching Trump and realizing that he didn't have any first friend around him. And what were the effects of that? And what I concluded was that the absence of that first friend had a really deleterious effect on Trump, most particularly in the last two months, as we all saw, of his presidency, when nobody could get him off the big lie. And you really needed somebody who could look him in the eye, whom he had total respect for, and tell him to leave the office with dignity. And there was nobody like that. So, you know, I I went to presidential literature to see what was written about the first friend, and I was shocked to learn there was nothing. You know, there's books about first wives, first sons, first chefs, first butlers, first pets. But no one has ever looked at the influence of this first friend on the man and the, the man's presidency. So I thought, well, there's a really good niche here I could fill if I can find good stories. I found nine good stories. At least I, I hope they're nine good stories. And I've told they the story. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You tell a good story in the preface, uh, as you mentioned, about vetting Al Gore as, as Bill Clinton's running mate. And you talk about uh, being asked you know, well, does, does Gore have any true friends? And then there being a very awkward encounter with Gore where he really had a hard time naming any, anyone who wasn't either a colleague or, or a family member. Uh, but I think in some ways that's, if you, I'll talk to most people in around politics, 
that would be the stereotype, which is the kind of people who run for office, especially the presidency, are the kind of people who aren't really capable of forming uh, normal friendships. So are, are the nine examples you have in this book, do you think they are nine exceptions and gore is the rule? Or do you think that the way that we think about the ability uh, of politicians to form friendships is, is inherently flawed? Well, I think that what I concluded from this three-year study of first friends is presidents who have first friends are generally the better for it. And so is our country. I think it reflects a certain emotional sophistication, uh, an ability to have empathy and compassion and to be generous of spirit. People who don't have first friends, I think it reflects a certain emotional deficiency, frankly. And I think it's incumbent upon us as voters to start considering that as a legitimate question when we vet our potential presidents. It's interesting, if you go back and look at the 38 presidential debates we've had since 1960, never once has a candidate been asked, you got any best friends? Who's your best friend? Why is this person your best friend? What does it say about you? And maybe it should be. I mean, there's there's been scientific studies of late that show that people who have close friendships are actually healthier people, um, both emotionally and physically. And so I think it's I think it's an important measure that has been overlooked for 200 and whatever it is, 50 years in our history, and maybe should be included much more in the discourse. And you know, you you, you give Aristotle's definition of friendship in the book and kind of the purest form is, I'm paraphrasing it, but, you know, someone who could effectively subjugate their needs for the good of someone else and, and it can be happy for someone else solely based on their own success without any impact on them. That's usually sort of the opposite of how most of us perceive um, politicians um, yes, right. to, to be. So is it that those who are capable of having true first friends are exceptions and are therefore kind of better suited for leadership? Or is it just that they are uh, a few weird examples of a profession of people who are generally emotionally? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think what, what I discovered is that it's very hard for politicians to have first friendships with other politicians because their interests are always changing. And, you know, part of friendship is is having these shared interests. And it's called the Palmerston theory. And I think both Kennedy and Nixon both subscribe to it, which is they could not have friend, real true friends in the House, the Senate, uh, or in the executive branch. And if you look at their, their history, they didn't really. Um, the only friendship, you know, John Kennedy was a legendary collector of friends. The only friendship that he could possibly claim was this guy, George Smathers. And Nixon too had really no friends in his years in the House or his two years in the Senate. And frankly, you know, outside of B.B. Rebozo, had no friends at all. And I think if, if you limit your definition of friendships to, you know, your profession, yeah, I think it's very hard for politicians to generate real friendship, but it does not preclude them from forging friendships outside. And as you see from my book, you know, most, I think, with the exception of, of Nixon, they all forge really true, meaningful in some ways, perfect friendships that Aristotle talks about, where you're each rooting for the other, you have shared values, you have shared interests. It's not just a, a relationship of purpose or of entertainment, which are lesser forms of, of, of friendship, but reach that elevated state where you can really have a true melding of the minds and of the spirit. And I think you see that with Joshua Speed and with Abraham Lincoln. I think you see that with Daisy Sukley and FDR. 
I think you see that with David Ormsby, Goran Kennedy, or, or even Jefferson and Madison. Um, and those are the friendships where they, you can really do great things for each other. And as I show in my book, for the country as a whole. And is it that the friend is able to appreciate the president for kind of who and what he is and isn't? Or is it that the friend is so unbowed and kind of unintimidated by the presidency that this is the one person who can just kind of speak truth to power and, and not worry about doing so? Well, I think you have to you have to look at the trajectory of their friendship. And in the cases of almost all of them, with the exception of Colonel House and Woodrow Wilson, who only meet a year before Woodrow Wilson is elected president, they are, all these friendships are forged at, in youth, right? Let's say somewhere between the ages of 16 and 25, when the president is not the president. The president is a commoner like you and I are. And so you get, you forge this relationship that transcends place and time that, that doesn't, that doesn't, isn't based on the axes of the president as it, as it would if you forged it when the president becomes a president, because the world then ultimately changes. These were friendships that were forged in the military, were forged in, in you know, in, uh, in restaurants, um, were forged in schools. And so there was an equality that began and that it doesn't really fundamentally change as the other person ascends the political ladder and ultimately becomes the president, the relationship stays basically the same as it did when it was when it first kind of melded. And I think you see that most dramatically with Eddie Jacobson and Harry Truman. They became friends when Truman was in his early 20s. Jacobson was a 16-year-old. It took root in the military. They started a, a, a haberdashery together in 1920. But it doesn't change so that when Harry, when Eddie Jacobson goes into the Oval Office to tell Harry Truman he has to see Chaim Weitzman, he speaks to him like he spoke to him when he was in the military. He speaks to him with the same brusqueness, the same honesty, and Truman basically treats him the same way. And they have this kind of knockdown drag out in the Oval Office. And finally, Harry Truman turns around. And he says, all right, you, you goddamn son of a bitch, you win. I'll see him. And only Eddie Jacobson could speak to him like that way, and only Harry could speak to Eddie that way. And it ended up resulting in the state of Israel being recognized by the United States government 11 minutes after it's declared in May of 1948. And I think a lot of these friendships are born of that same authenticity that allows these two individuals to speak with such honesty. And, and do you think, I mean, the, the president's, do they kind of in their mind sequester this one friendship as, okay, this is the one true normal human relationship I have and everything else is transactional and political? Or do you think they think that they have lots of true friends, but there's only a handful of presidents that really do and only a handful of people that would actually qualify? I think it depends. I don't think you can generalize to that, Bradley. Um, yeah. I think with, with Nixon, he had only one true friend. You know, He wasn't choosing between many. Um, I think with John Kennedy, he had so many great friends. He had friends for every moment. And I, t I write about that in my chapter. But there was one friend whom I focus on, David Ormsby Gore, who could kind of move between his different worlds, the worlds of the intellectuals, the worlds of the playboys, the worlds of the journalists, the worlds from his Navy years, the worlds from Choate and Harvard. And the reason why I, I, I chose him, in addition to the fact that his daughter Caroline suggested it to me, is that he was the one friend for all moods and all moments. Um, he could sit down in the Oval Office and talk about the Lebanon Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and then go out on the golf course 
and hack it around and really enjoy each other's company. And that to me is kind of the embodiment of that perfect friendship that Aristotle talked about. So you, you mentioned Eddie Jacobson and his role in ultimately the creation of Israel. In terms of the other eight uh, presidential first friends, who do you think had the biggest impact on on history itself? And who do you think kind of deliberately just wanted to be, you know, friends without trying to influence decisions of the president? <laughs> well, I think I think Bibi Rebozo initially intended not to have great influence on world history, but because once he became the first friend to the president, as opposed to the vice president or the senator, was co-opted into Nixon's worst uh, or nefarious deeds and ended up, I think, becoming a central player in the reason for the Watergate break-in. But I think that started out as just, hey, uh, you know, a friendship that was to provide entertainment and frivolity and a break from his dark broodings. I think um, the friendship of of Jefferson and Madison was probably the most consequential friendship in American history. It was a true 50-year melding of minds, spirit, body, um, in a way that affected the founding of our country, the key vestiges of our democracy, whether it was the the writing of the Constitution or the adoption of the Bill of Rights, the formation of the Democratic Republican Party, the Louisiana Purchase, all of these things came about because of this great collaboration. It was first and foremost a friendship that became a collaboration and became this kind of force, this counterforce to the Federalists in the early 1790s that resulted in all of these things that I just said. They exchanged 1,250 letters in their lifetime, some as long as 17 pages, some as short as just exchanging gifts uh, between Jefferson in Paris and Madison back in Philadelphia. But it was, it's a, it's a really, I think it's a very underappreciated friendship in American history, but so consequential as was, I think, and just to, I'll, I could go on on this for, yeah, no, please, while, please do. as you can tell, but I think the other first friendship that had a, a profound impact on the country and the world was Colonel House for Woodrow Wilson. Um, Colonel House was never actually a colonel. He was just given that title by a, a Texas governor that he helped elect. He was a political fixer from Texas who had dreams of playing on a much larger stage. And he meets Woodrow Wilson in 1911, when Wilson is now the governor of, of New Jersey and hoping to run for president. Wilson had lost his best friend. He had one good friend at Princeton University in the faculty, and they had a bitter falling out five years earlier. And it was one of the great, great regrets of Woodrow Wilson's life, the loss of this first friend. And he was shopping for a first friend. At the same time, Colonel House is looking for somebody to give him both the opportunity to be bigger than the political fixers and an opportunity to play on a global stage. And he gets it with Woodrow Wilson. They become instant best friends, essentially after their first meeting in New York in November of 1911. By uh, January of of 1913, when he's the president-elect, Colonel House is the single most person, most important person around Woodrow Wilson. He is picking every important cabinet job for, for Woodrow Wilson. He's spending all of his personal time with Colonel House. By, 19, by the end of 1913, Colonel House says to Woodrow Wilson, I essentially want to be your diplomat-in-chief. He has a very weak Secretary of State in Bryan, and he basically sidelines him from his role as Secretary of State. He goes over to Europe. He starts meeting with the Foreign Secretary of 
Britain. He meets with the German Kaiser. He meets with the, the French prime minister. And he becomes Woodrow Wilson's diplomat in chief without any public accountability. He's not confirmed by the Senate. He's not on any um, organizational chart. He's not particularly known to the public, but he becomes for the next five years, if you can believe it, with no foreign policy training, he'd never negotiated a foreign treaty, he'd never met with a foreign leader. He becomes essentially the head of the NSC, the head of the CIA, the head of DOD, the head of the State Department, all wrapped up in one private citizen who had known Woodrow Wilson for essentially one year before he becomes president. And he exerts enormous influence um, in shaping the 14 points, in shaping the, the, the plank that includes the League of Nations. He plays a pivotal role at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919 in trying to reach that final agreement that ends up, as we know, probably resulting in the Second World War 20 years later. And um, it's only when Wilson's wife decides that she's had enough of him and convinces Wilson that he is doing a disservice both to him and to the nation, does he get cut off at the very end of the Paris Peace Conference, and then spends the next 20 years of his life trying to make sense of his excommunication from the Wilson orbit and trying publicly through histories to reclaim his reputation because he essentially you know, is thrown out of the Wilson orbit and it um, feels quite bereft by it and spends 20 years trying to reclaim What did he do specifically to piss off Edith Wilson? Well, I think Edith Wilson was the second wife. You know, Ellen Wilson dies in 1914 and Woodrow Wilson is lonely. His only friend at that point is Colonel House. He quickly uh, remarries with Edith Wilson and Edith Wilson understands the crucial role that House is playing in her husband's life. She sees it in the correspondence that they're sending back and forth. She sees it in how much time he is spending uh, with him up in New York when he travels there and how much time that Colonel House is spending with Wilson at the White House. And she becomes, I think, frankly, jealous because she's the new flavor of the month, and yet she has to share it with House. So she's looking for her opening. The opening comes when Wilson returns from the U.S. for the second phase of the Paris Peace Conference she thinks that House, in Wilson's absence, has been compromising away all of Wilson's ideals in trying to reach an agreement. The, the conference is going on and on. Wilson is a very idealistic, obdurate man who doesn't want to make compromise in, in order to reach a peace. House is much more of a pragmatist and is willing to make these compromises. He's, much, he's a much better negotiator than Wilson is. So Wilson comes back and he sees that there have been a lot of concessions made without his knowledge. He also sees that House has been talking to the press, which he had not done before, but he felt that he deserved, that he deserved a little bit of play in, House, in Wilson's absence and starts briefing. A story comes out that, that places him at the center of negotiations to the exclusion of the president. The president takes sick with, he gets Spanish flu when he comes back. And so Edith, calls House to uh, their apartment where they're staying and basically says, you're a jerk. We don't want anything to do with you anymore. Basically throws him out of the house. He flees when she shows him the article and says, you're responsible for this. Uh, Wilson basically doesn't talk to him the rest of the Paris Peace Conference. They, they bid goodbye on the train platform in Paris for Wilson to go home. It's the last time Wilson ever speaks to him. It's a dramatic break. Um, that, as I say, is shattering to Colonel House. 
talk about Daisy Suckley, you know, and, and did, did was the goal to find at least one first friend that was female or was it just, hey, FDR is among our greatest leaders, uh, whoever his first friend is, that's why I want to profile. Yeah, well, I, it's a good question. You know, people would not normally, it's funny, we, to go from Colonel House to Daisy Suckley is a long, is a long path because as influential as Colonel House was on policy and substance, Daisy was not. And I make no pretense about that. Um, yes. I mean, look, it, I, I wanted to find a woman. It was very hard because for most of our history, you know, first of all, women couldn't vote, let alone were they serving at the highest levels, uh, you know, of a, gov- of a president's um, either political uh, or social orbits, unless they were, you know, the first wife or a relative. But I thought that Daisy Sickley was a different kind of model of a first friend somebody who doesn't advise or influence or seek to influence, but provides an emotional ballast that for presidents, I think is especially important. And one of the things that I really came to appreciate about FDR was his intense loneliness in the White House. He didn't really have a relationship, an emotional relationship with his wife, Eleanor. She was often traveling on behalf of the causes she cared about. He had very close relationships with women generally, but the, you know, Francis Perkins was his secretary of labor. Missy Lahand was the first woman to really play a senior role in her presidency. And I would have done her as the first friend, but she takes ill early in his presidency and is largely confined to a bed for the last five years and dies in the White House in 1942. Um, but I thought Daisy was the kind of the, the constant companion the person that was the antidote to the loneliness he felt when, as he said, I'm either exhibit A, when I am you know, in front of crowds and listening to their applause, or as he said, I'm left entirely alone. When the cameras go off, the clapping stops. And he didn't like being alone. And Daisy Sukli just temperamentally suited him. I think she was somebody that he was sexually interested in, Earlier in his life, they may or may not have had a very brief um, kiss on a hill, which turned into quite a scene in a movie called um, Hyde Park on Hudson, which overly dramatic, dramatized their relationship. But I think that he needed Daisy Sookley in his life to be centered, to be calm and relaxed, and to not feel that overwhelming sense of loneliness. And she plays that role to perfection. And... I think he was a better president as a result of that. So you were able to talk to Bill Clinton about his friendship with, with Vernon Jordan and in a way confirm that, that that who is he saw his first friend. Um, if you were able to go back in time and speak to Lincoln and Jefferson and FDR and everyone else, do you think they would be surprised by who you picked or do you think they would all kind of say, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right? That's a really fun question, Bradley. I'd love that question. I haven't thought of that question. I think... Abraham Lincoln most certainly would have said Joshua Speed. I think the four years they spent sharing a bed and everything else was had a profound influence on him. And I think it was reflected in the fact that as soon as he's elected president, one of the first people he wants to see is Joshua Speed to have him in his administration. I think there's no question, um, and they say it in their letters, that Madison and Jefferson found in each other best friends. Um, no question that Franklin Pierce and Nathaniel Hawthorne were best friends, in, in part because they had so few friends other than each other. Um, and that's and I speak to that at some length in my book. Um, 
There's no question with Woodrow Wilson, as I said earlier, that he only had two best friends in his life. Um, and I think the one that was most consequential for the reasons I said were, you know, was, was Colonel House. Kennedy, um, Kennedy had a great friend from Choate named Len Billings. And if you asked most historians, they would say, oh, it's got to be Len Billings because Len Billings gave 14 hours of oral history to the Kennedy Library and told some just great personal stories about their interactions while Kennedy was president and before. He had his own room on the third floor. He had his own Secret Service code name. But I think that if you ask Kennedy, and I, you know, I guess as close as I could get to asking Kennedy, I asked his daughter. But I think that with David Ormsby Gore, they had a melding, as I said earlier, of not only interests and pleasure, but of mind and spirit. And it, it resulted, as I write in the chapter, of some pretty profound things. I don't think, but for that friendship with David Ormsby Gore, does Kennedy pursue and then sign a limited nuclear test ban treaty in 1963, kind of the signature, the signature legislation of his thousand day presidency. And I think the beginning of the end of the Cold War, it was David Ormsby Gore's insistence beginning in 1955 when they they really sit down and discuss the whole issue of disarmament. And it's only with Gore's, Gore's in his ear, with Gore being in his ear, that Kennedy starts to appreciate the importance of limiting um, these these powerful weapons that almost took the world out in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so it's both Ormsby Gore's counsel during the Missile Crisis and then being around him so much and being his conscience in pursuing something that wasn't necessarily in Kennedy's interests, political interests, does Kennedy come around to a full-throated endorsement of this treaty and then getting it passed? How does the staff typically, from what you can tell, feel about the first friend? Do they see them as this great stalking horse that they can go to to talk to the president in a way that they can't? Or do they see it as this person who's constantly meddling and interfering and getting in the way? I think it varies depending on president. Um, With Ormsby Gore, uh, I have in my chapter that everybody from the vice president to Dean Rusk, his secretary of state, just hated the fact that this British (laughs) ambassador... Think about it. A British ambassador, a non-citizen, has more of the president's ear on foreign policy than they do. And it caused, I think, some friction there. Certainly, the vice president bitched that he was down at the end of the table for XCOM meetings uh, while that limey was seated right next to him. You know, and and Johnson had to suffer the the, um, indignity of having the doors bang on his back of his chair while he's looking over at Ormsby Gore seated next to the president. Um, I think with Vernon Jordan, it was interesting. I think the staff uh, really valued having him. You know, he he cultivated a lot of the staff to make sure the staff was working on behalf of the administration and the president, and not on behalf of their own personal interests. He was he was very present in the lives of the senior most aides, as I discovered. I think they saw him as an ally who could be used to uh, influence Clinton, and I think Clinton used Jordan to influence uh, staff and, I should add, his wife, when I think his wife was ready to leave him after he admitted to his affair with Monica Lewinsky. So I think that that was an, uh, that was an example where they, there was a real embrace because he didn't want or need anything from the president. He, he wasn't taking away time from other people. He was just seen as an asset for both staff and for the principal. 
Which of the nine presidents, based on your research, would you most want to be friends with? Huh, that's interesting. God, I'd love to have been friends with either Jefferson or Madison, um, just to enjoy the, the, the agility of their minds and their passion for this republic. Um, so I'll, t- I'll pick that for the 18th century, 19, early 19th century. Okay. Um, I would love to have gotten to know Colonel House because he was such, such a, I mean, listen, Bradley, you understand The Fixer, right? Because you wrote yep. a book called The Fixer. He was the quintessential 20th century version of you. Um, and I think just watching him uh, maneuver would have been a thing of beauty. And I would have liked to have seen, you know, how a master could could go from being an unknown private citizen searching for somebody to take him to the next level and within 12 months achieving it on a level he couldn't even have dreamed of and then running, as I say, the foreign policy apparatus of the United States for six years. Um, and I think I would have really enjoyed David Ormsby Gore because I think Kennedy took such delight in him. He, I think he, he and um, Jackie spent more time with David and Sissy Gore than any other couple because they just delighted in their company. They were, they were fast speakers, fast thinkers. They didn't like to be bored as Kennedy hated to be bored. They liked to play golf. They liked to go to the horse races. Um, they, it just seemed like a friendship that was a lot of fun. And I think I would have liked David Ormsby Gore. Um, and I'm sorry, you know, he died in 1985 tragically from a car accident. The day he was interviewing people for Kennedy scholarships at Oxford University, he really kind of held on to that flame and kept it kept it bright for years and years after his best friend died. And uh, and I think and I think a lot of Kennedy's magic kind of wore off on him and was just a delightful guy even after Kennedy's uh, death. With his, he had a very wide circle of friends in England, as I discovered. And of the 50 total presidents, it's to exclude the nine that you included in this book, uh, when you were researching kind of the other 41, who, who struck you as sort of the most friendless? Um, I think that, well, it, well, I should say two that I wrote about were essentially friendless, uh, both Nixon and Wilson. I just happened to find first friends who I thought were quite interesting and consequential to American history. But I think you would put them right up there. D- Dwight Eisenhower went to visit Dick Dick Nixon in the hospital during his presidency. And he came back from the hospital and he said to his assistant, how in the hell does a man at the height of his profession have no friends? He he saw uh, an empty hospital room. He expected to see a a whole slew load of hangers on because it wasn't a contagious disease he was in the hospital for. And he was just shocked that Richard Nixon could have reached the apex of the political world and had no friends. So I think he was right up there. I think um, Eisenhower, I looked around at him. He, I think, had transactional friendships. I think Truman, I mean, I think um, Trump had only transactional friendships, as I said earlier. I don't think he felt the need for a first friend. Um, I talked to somebody very, very close to him uh, when I was researching the book because I wanted to find a friend. And he said, look, you're not going to find a friend because in essence, his base is his friend. He's always looking for affirmation. And so in a sense, his Twitter feed is his first friend. And when we go up to Camp David, you know, he doesn't hang around with his pals that he brings up there. He sits on the phone and calls around to supporters. And I think that that's somewhat, that's unique, I think, um, 
to have really nobody uh, that he could call a first friend. Maybe Tom Barrack, who ran his inaugural committee and was friendly, quite friendly with him initially, but then ran into some problems with the way he funded the inauguration and he got cut off, which I think proves the transactional nature of that friendship. So I think of the 46, I think Trump is probably the only one that I looked at uh, who I could find nobody. Who who would, if, if, if you had to say who Biden's is, uh, you know, it's a little premature, but who would you pick? I don't think it's premature. I think there's no question. If you asked 100 people who are close to Biden, they would all tell you it's Ted Kaufman. Uh, Ted Kaufman was his chief of staff for 22 years. And remember, he it wasn't just a, you know, an eight to six job. It would be a 6.30 a.m. to 8 o'clock p.m. job because they would ride the rails together back and forth between Wilmington and Washington because they both lived in Wilmington. And they forged, I think, as close to a perfect friendship as you can get. After he left um, his his role as chief of staff, he became first friend. He became his uh, the mentor to Bo, Bo and Hunter. Um, he was the first person to see Joe Biden when he came out of his aneurysm surgery in 1988. It was the he was the voice that convinced Biden to drop out of the presidential race in 1987. When Bo was dying in 2015, a month before Biden asked. Ted to come down to Washington to take an unpaid special government employee role for him, where he had an office in the OEOB and was just there for him because it was a particularly wrenching time for Biden. And he wanted a friend around to give him that emotional support that he so desperately needed. And Ted was there for four months, just giving him that comfort, just being that voice and that presence when he needed him. So, um, you know, I think hopefully if I can ever write an epilogue to this book, I would like to write that chapter because I think it's a really beautiful story of friendship. Yeah. So last question, in this era of incredible political polarization and social media and character assassination on Twitter all day, um, do you think that becomes a deterrent to people who could be really good friends to presidents, but ultimately just decide they don't want all that attention and headache? Hmm. It takes a it takes a pretty strong person to turn down a f- first friendship with a president, I think. Um, and I think if you play it right, let's take Marty Nesbitt, for example, who is uh, who is Barack Obama's first friend. You probably don't even know his name, right? Uh, but, I, I know who he is, but I don't know him. Yeah, sure. Okay, right. But you know, he he appears nine times in Obama's uh, memoir, Promised Land, and plays a really important role in Obama's life up to the presidency. You know, he's the one who, um, he, he convinces, uh, Michelle to give up her objections to him running in 2007. Um, you know, he's, he's there for every important moment. Uh, Obama talks about how important his friendship was. And I think, you know, staying out of the media spotlight, not getting involved where you're not supposed to be like BB Rebozo, BB Rebozo could have gone down in history as a great first friend, but he didn't have the courage to say no when Nixon said, I want you to help, you know, raise campaign funds off the books, or I want you to, to do some covert activities to help undermine Martha Mitchell, who's a nut job in my, in my, uh, in my life. He couldn't say no. And because of that, he enabled some of the president's worst instincts and became known in history as Nixon's bag man. But that's an exception. I think, I think, 
most of these friends, as I said earlier, forge these friendships in earlier, more innocent, more simple times and grow to really love their friend. And it transcends, as I said, place and time, and they can place themselves properly in the orbit so that they don't become part of the story, but provide that blunt truth, that emotional ballast, that reassurance that presidents desperately need when they get into that Oval Office. So I think in general, I think the polarization is not going to be a deterrent for the smart first friends in waiting. If they look at the history, if they read my book and see how those who succeeded did and how those who failed didn't. There we go. Gary Ginsburg, the book comes out July 6th. Already got a great review in Publishers Weekly, First Friends, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Thanks for writing the book. It was it was great to read and, and highly uh, recommend to our listeners to go out and get a copy of it. Yeah, and thank you very much, Bradley, for having me on. Absolutely. Appreciate it.